we were in the fishing tournament of a lifetime. Two young guys against two old guys. And it was really close. Who was going to win this battle? And we were doing fairly well. Fishing, next thing you know, I've got a huge one on the line. This thing was big. So big, the boat started to kind of tilt a little bit. I could see my partner starting to get nervous. And I could see the two old guys in the other boat really starting to sweat. Thinking, what's he about to bring in? So I start working this fish in. And this thing is big. I've got to use everything I've got. I get it right up next to the boat, and it's so big, I'm just kind of stunned a little bit. I take a moment, I shouldn't have taken a moment, because at that moment, the fish ate the hook and just went swimming off. And I was like, whoa, that's the biggest fish, we got to catch that fish. And so for the next 30 minutes, my partner and I took a couple of nets, and we just followed this fish because you could see it swimming around right underneath the boat, just taunting us, just saying, come and get me. It was huge. There's a huge fish at Pickerel Lake right now with a hook in his belly. Someone should catch that fish. Well, let me tell you what. We didn't win that fishing tournament in the book according to the law, but those two old men really knew we really won that fishing tournament. That fish was huge. How many of you have ever caught a huge fish? How many of you have heard a fishing story like that before? (laughs) Now, most of the time when you hear that, you think what? Oh, you're exaggerating a little bit until you come to church. But all of us have heard fishing stories at some point where each time the story is told, what happens? The fish gets a little bit bigger. The drama builds. The the reeling in takes a little bit longer. I'm afraid this morning, though, that most of us have started viewing the Bible as a fish story. A lot of people, when they hear the Bible, what do they hear? They hear a fish story, exaggeration. They hear, well, that's not possible. Well, due to us hearing the Bible as a fish story, many of us have ignored a major portion of the Bible that affects our life every single day day. Most of us hear the Bible as a fish story because when we read the Bible and we hear about Jesus, we see Jesus experiencing and doing things that we've never seen or experienced. Just in the story we read this morning in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus takes demons in two people and puts them in a herd of pigs, and the herd of pigs drowns in a body of water. I don't know about you, but I've never been around that. that that's a level of absurdity. And so, is it true, or is it a fish story? Well, this morning, I want to try and understand the supernatural activity of Jesus and the supernatural activity that's in our lives and in the world today. When I say supernatural, I mean work outside of ourselves done by spirits or beings that are not able to be testified to by science. So a supernatural realm is something that's not able to be identified by scientific work or viewed, seen, or heard by the human eye, even though the effects are seen, viewed, and heard by the human eye and science. We cannot deny that in the Bible there's a variety of supernatural activity. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, telling about the life of Jesus, are filled with stories about supernatural activity. And so we're forced with a decision. 
If you deny the supernatural activity, there's only one result of that. You deny the legitimacy of Jesus Christ. If, If supernatural activity does not happen, Jesus is simply a liar. And his followers are big liars because they're just passing on stories that really didn't happen to get our attention and saying they did happen. If we deny supernatural activity, we deny Jesus himself. And so this morning, I'm coming from the perspective that says the Bible is true. And when I say the Bible is true, be careful how I hear this. When I say the Bible is true, I'm not saying the Bible is a scientific textbook. Big difference. What the Bible teaches is true. So for example, in the book of Psalm, it says that there's armies coming from four corners of the earth. Well, if you took that literally, that would mean the earth is flat. We know that's not scientifically true. The Bible's not teaching us that the earth is flat. The Bible is teaching that at some point in history, there's going to be a massive invasion. It's how you teach. And so I'm coming from a position that takes the Bible seriously and true, but not literally. There's a big difference. When you take what the Bible says seriously and true, you have to take supernatural activity as part of that. Because Jesus teaches it, Jesus experiences it. So we're going to spend some time this morning trying to understand supernatural activity. And I want to start by helping you understand maybe a little bit, why is it that Jesus experienced something different than you and I experience today? Undeniable, it's different. Well, there's a couple of reasons this morning that you should be aware of of why maybe you and I don't experience the level of activity miraculously or demonically that Jesus experienced. The number one reason is this. When Jesus came, it was the pinnacle of the spiritual war. When Jesus came, it was the pinnacle of the spiritual war. What I mean by that is this. It was the moment in history when victory was going to be decided or that Jesus was going to lose. It was, it was that moment in history. And so what happened was this. Jesus came to town. You maybe hear a phrase from Jesus that says, the kingdom of God is at hand. What Jesus is saying there is that the presence of God, that the reign of God is here now as though it's never been before. And so what happens? There's a level of intensity that has never been experienced before or since because that was the pinnacle when the battle was going to be won. Let me give you a little bit of a hint here. When you read something in Matthew chapter 8, if you still have it in Matthew chapter 8, look at this. Matthew 8, verse 29. The demons speak to Jesus, and they say to him, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? That's a big deal. The demons recognize the identity of Jesus Christ. And the people around have not yet recognized that this is the Messiah, the Son of God. The demons know it, though, because they're in a different realm. They're part of a different dimension. And then they say next, which gives us a real hint of what's going on. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Before the time of what? The demons knew there was a moment coming. That moment coming is referred to as the hour of glorification in the book of John. That moment when Jesus is crucified and then three days later rises again. Demons, Satan knew this moment was coming. And when that moment come, Satan knew if it happened, he was done. He was vanquished. He lost the war. He would be a limping enemy at that point. 
And so you get a little hint there that the demons are like, well, we know something's coming. Are you, are you going to do something before it to us now? So when Jesus' ministry is going on, it's the pinnacle of the spiritual battle. It's going to be much more intense than we've ever seen it or will see it. The second reason that we see more activity in the Gospels than in our life is that Jesus performed miracles as signs. So in the Gospel of John, specifically chapter 2 and other places, it says he performed the, performed the first of many signs. What's the point of a sign? To get you somewhere else. A sign is never an end in and of itself. It's either to get you to a website, get you to a destination. And so the miracles of Jesus were something pointing to something else. What they were pointing to was what? The identity of Jesus. That Jesus was the Son of God. That this one with all power has arrived. So there's more miraculous activity because Jesus was giving evidence, signs of who he was. The third reason for more activity when Jesus was present is that the activity was evidence of Jesus' authority. So there's a famous story that you've probably heard before where a bunch of friends bring a guy who's paralyzed to see Jesus. They can't get into Jesus, so what do they do? They lower him through the roof. Remember this story? They lower him through the roof. What we oftentimes forget is that the first thing Jesus says to the man is not get up and walk. The first thing Jesus says is what? Your sins are forgiven. Okay, and a very odd thing to say to someone who's paralyzed in that moment, who's traveled miles to be healed. But then what does Jesus say? He looks at the crowd and says, So that you may know I have the authority to forgive sins, I say, get up and walk. The healing of the paralyzed man was so that people would recognize Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. So, Jesus performed more miraculous deeds and there's more activity because the kingdom of God was coming in fullness, the pinnacle of spiritual warfare. A, there were signs. B, there was a signal of authority coming. And then finally, there is this times when Jesus has compassion. Somebody's coming to be healed. And it says multiple times in the Gospels, Jesus had compassion. So that miracle wasn't going to bring greater crowds. That miracle wasn't proving to the religious leaders that he had the authority. That miracle was simply because at that moment, Jesus had compassion on that person. Now, this is where it gets really complex in a hurry. Because Jesus didn't have compassion on everyone. Not everybody who came to Jesus was healed. And we know that God doesn't answer every prayer for healing. So there's this mysterious element that at moments Jesus did intervene. That paralyzed man was healed. He walked. But not every paralyzed man has been healed and walked. So there's this element of mystery that's going on here as well. So there's more activity during the day of Jesus because it was the pinnacle of the spiritual battle because they were signs pointing to the identity of Jesus. It was a signal of the authority of Jesus. And at moments, it purely flowed from the compassion of Jesus' heart. This morning... It's time we recognize the spiritual battle that we're in. What you see, what you feel, what you hear is not all there is. The Bible would attest that there's much more going on. And so this morning, we've got a way different way of looking at the world. We have a different worldview, you could say, a different lens through which we look at things. And so I was thinking to myself this last week, why should someone listen to this sermon? 
these are the kind of topics that some people are really interested in. They, like, they buy every book on Satan and the Holy Spirit and miraculous activity. And then these are topics that other people are like, don't talk to me about that at all. So it's like two levels of extreme. And you can see in the church as well, there's some churches that are big into this. Every Sunday, we got a demon, let's cast out. And other churches that are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You raise your hand, the door is right over there. And so you say this morning, well, pastor, we're not one of those churches. Well, what kind of church is that? The first church of raise your hand? Oh, Pat, we're not one of those churches, pastor, that's into that demonic activity. Well, what type of church is that? One of those churches that's serious about what the Word of God teaches? I think all of us this morning would agree that one of the biggest pet peeves is what? When people pick and choose what they want out of certain things and leave out other elements. Well, are we going to be one of those churches that picks and chooses what's comfortable? And so there's a reality here that we have to deal with. And so why should you listen to this sermon this morning? Here, above all, if you take the Bible seriously, you should listen to the sermon one simple reason. There's someone outside of your life that wants to destroy your life. There's someone outside of your life that wants to destroy your life. This morning, there is someone specifically that's working that says, I don't want that person to have joy. There's someone right now specifically that's working that says, I'm going to break up that person's relationship. There's someone against you this morning that's work, actively working against you. And you can agree with me or not this morning. That's true. You can say, well, I'm not going to really be into that stuff. You're in the battle whether you want to be or not. And so this morning, the question is this. Are you going to ignore or engage in the battle? I don't know about you, but I've found this ignoring thing doesn't work very well. I try it on home projects all the time. I still got a hole that needs to be patched in the ceiling. It just doesn't work. You can say, oh, I'm ignored, out of sight, out of mind. Same is true spiritually and in our life with Christ. Ignore it doesn't fix the problem. This morning, there's someone adamantly opposed with, to us. I want to share a couple of verses with you to help you understand this. First is in John 10.10. Jesus is speaking about the devil, and he says about the devil that he has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And then in Ephesians chapter 6, the apostle Paul writes and says that our battle is not against the flesh. Our battle is against the principalities and powers of the world, Satan. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5, the apostle Peter writes, he says, be on your guard. The devil prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. And we could look at multiple other spots this morning, but God's word in multiple instances reminds us and encourages us that, hey, there's an enemy and he's working against you. C.S. Lewis, I think, summarizes it up best. He's done a lot of writing on Satan. Maybe some of you are familiar with his books where he kind of takes a little book and pretends to be Satan and then talking maybe how Satan would talk a little bit. And so C.S. Lewis says the following, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, demons, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, You're unhealthy, when every rock you look under finds a demon. You're also unhealthy when under every rock you lift up, there's not a demon. 
the reality is there is demonic activity. There is supernatural activity outside of us. The problem is most of us have fallen into what some would label functional deism. Functional deism. Maybe you haven't heard that term before. It's a term used in academic settings to describe people that believe in an existence of a higher power, but that higher power is not engaged in the world today. And so you believe that at some point in history, maybe God gave the Ten Commandments, God set things in motion, but God today is not involved in the material world. Most people would say, whoa, we reject that because Jesus came into the material world. We reject that because the Holy Spirit has promised to be with us. But most of us reject it academically, but we function like it practically. So a lot of us are functioning as a functional deist. Where we believe in a higher power, but not actually in the reality day to day. The message of the scripture is that there is a higher power active in the day-to-day happenings in the world around us. So, what, what is this higher power? Let's just spend a few moments. Uh, consider this Seminary 101. You're welcome to Satan 101 class. So, what does the Bible teach about Satan? Satan 101. First is this. Satan is a fallen angel. Satan is a fallen angel. And there's a variety of mystery around this. The Bible describes in Ezekiel and other prophecy that at some moment in history... There was a battle where the angels used their free will to turn their backs on God. And so we don't know when that happened. Some argue that that happened before um, creation itself. Others argue that it happened during the process of creation. Others argue that it happened on day six, if you take a literal view of creation. So it's, it's all over the map of when it happened. The main teaching, though, that's clear from the scriptures is this, is that Satan is a fallen angel. The reason that that's important to understand is that Satan is not the opposite of God. We're not in the middle of some cosmic battle of who's going to win. Satan is not the opposite of God. Satan does not have the powers of God. Satan is a fallen angel who's got great authority and great powers, but it's completely different than God himself. And so Satan is a fallen angel. He is not the opposite of God. The The third piece about Satan that's vital to know is this. Satan has been defeated according to the Bible. Now this is where it gets a little bit weird. According to the Bible, Colossians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians, Jesus himself said it in different ways. Satan's already been defeated. Like in Colossians chapter 2, it says, At the cross, Jesus disarmed the powers and the principalities of the world. Well, why is this? How can Satan already be defeated? Well, in the book of Revelation, specifically in Revelation chapter 12, as they have this vision of heaven, of what's going on, in this vision of heaven, Satan is accusing before God. So you could say that Satan's main job description is two things, lying and accusing. We'll get to the other in a little bit. Satan accusing up before God about us, saying, hey, they're not, Frank's really not your follower. Frank is guilty. And so what Satan would do would bring accusations to God about humanity. What happened is this, the moment Jesus died on the cross, those accusations fell on deaf ears. Because what happened is this, now Jesus presented a pathway for someone to be condemnation free, that no longer guilty. So Satan can say all he wants about so-and-so is guilty, 
but you've got Jesus interceding at the right hand of the Father saying, innocent, forgiven. And so Satan has ultimately already been defeated. Important to understand, because the worst type of enemy is what? The one who has nothing to lose. The worst enemy, and you can ask military commanders about this in real life, is the one who has nothing to lose. Why? They're completely unpredictable. Completely unpredictable and willing to do anything and everything. And Satan has nothing to lose because he's already guaranteed an eternity in abyss. He's already guaranteed an eternity in what we call hell. So what's he doing right now? He's got one job right now. Take as many people with him as he can. Now, we are way out. Some of you are like, whoa, this is weird. This is foundational to the teaching of Scripture, is that there's been a battle, but the battle has been won by Jesus Christ on the cross. And it's been sealed, it's been delivered, it's been given. But now Satan is causing havoc. For whatever reason, again, this is a mystery. Some people would argue that, well, didn't Satan just go to abyss then after he lost? Well, we don't know why that is, but again, multiple times, 1 Peter 5, if he says, hey, the devil's wandering around like a lion trying to snatch you, if he's in abyss, then Peter's just lying. And in 1 John chapter 5, John says, hey, the whole world is under the power of the prince of the air. Well, if Satan's already in abyss for good, then... John is just trying to encourage obedience from us by using a lie. Satan is active in the world today. So Satan is a fallen angel. He's not the opposite of God. Satan has been defeated. Satan is uh, just an unpredictable enemy. And now there's finally a lot of mystery surrounding the capability of Satan. We don't know exactly what authority and power Satan has. We've got different evidences in the Bible that he's got power to overtake someone that's not a Christian. We've got evidences in the Bible that Satan can inhabit a human being. We kind of have this with Judas a little bit in his interaction with Jesus. The Bible describes Satan as coming in to Judas. But there's a lot of mystery around exactly what power and ability Satan has. But what's been revealed is that Satan is present and active. And so this morning then, let's get practical for a moment. If we take the Bible seriously, if we take Jesus seriously, and we understand that we're in a battle for our soul, for our life, for our neighbor's soul, for our own joy, we're in a battle, what should we do? What should we do? I want to share with you this morning four practical things that we need to be thinking about regarding in the battle with Satan. The first is this. You simply need to raise your, raise your level of awareness. Again, when's the last time that you just simply acknowledged Satan is present and working? Ignoring does nothing. A good friend of mine that I'm with quite a bit has really had an interesting way of doing this. He always asks me a very simple question. He always says, what would the evil one have you do? What would the evil one have you do? Kind of a different way of thinking about next, but what it does is it forces you to remember that what? There is an evil one involved here and wants us to do something specific or different. Asking that question also helps you what? Discern what God would have you do. 
Sometimes it's easier to define what the evil one would have you do than what God would have you do. Let me give you an example. You're in a little bit of a, a fight or a tiff, let's call it, with a friend. You know how that gets. Something gets said, something gets on left undone, a hurtful, hurtful word gets said. So all of a sudden you have animosity towards another person. Now most of us know in the Bible this is a sin. It's sin to be, have animosity in our hearts toward others. So most of us do those, we say, well, I'm going to just kind of ignore them, and so I'm not really sinning anymore because I'm not doing anything bad to them. When in reality, we still have animosity. We haven't been restored. When you ask yourself, what would the evil one have me to do when there's a relational trouble? Well, the evil one would have me do this. Ignore and talk badly about the other person. So when I, when I kind of acknowledge that and think about it, I can begin to think through then, where is Satan active in my life? So just ask yourself sometime, what would the evil one have me do in this situation? Become aware of the activity of Satan. The second thing we need to really think about is this. Satan's main job description outside of accusing is lying. In John 8, verse 44, Jesus says about the devil that the devil is the father of all lies. Very simple, because of the character of the devil, the devil can do nothing but lie. So, so Satan's goal is this, is just to twist the truth just a little bit. Just a little bit. So if you came here this morning and I stood up and I told you when you walked in this morning, if I said, hey, Jesus was not born from a Virgin Mary. Most of you would say, whoa, what happened to you last week? Call a vote, let's get rid of this guy. It'd be pretty clear, right? Something goofy's going on. Satan's not going to try and do that. Why? Because it's obvious. He's going to twist it just a little bit. So what he's going to do is he's going to say something like this. Hey, you've made mistakes, right? And so, if you've made mistakes, why care about the mistakes of others? Take a little element of truth, and then just twist it a little bit to move us off of the mark. It happens all of the time in our hearts, my heart included. It takes just a little bit of truth, a little bit of truth, you know, where God says he knows the very number of hairs on our head and cares about everything. Well, Satan will just come in and twist that a little bit. He's not going to convince us that God is just this uncaring God up there. He's going to convince us this, that mm, what you have right now is just not in line or that important to God. So just twist it a little bit. When the reality is that God cares about every detail. He knows the very number of hairs on our head. Satan lies. We've got to be aware of this. And so what we've got to do then is we've got to be more and more in pursuit of truth, so that we've got a standard by which to judge all of these voices, all of these emotions, feelings that we've got going on. You've got to have a plumb line, something to go back to and say, okay, what I'm hearing here, what I'm sensing here, does it line up? Recognizing that the devil is a liar, we've got to keep coming back to the plumb line, the word of God. Third thing we need to be very much aware of. Now, be very careful with this one, okay? Be, listen very carefully during this part. Is that when you're in relationship with other people, we are aware that there's other activity going on besides just me and them. So, for example, you're having difficulty in relationship. We know this, that Satan is at work in that person's life. Now, I do not recommend at all when you're in the middle of a difficult relationship and someone says a bad word to you, simply saying back to them, you're just a pawn of Satan. 
Okay, not a good idea. Okay, it, it's not going to be helpful or convincing at all. And they, it, whether they agree or disagree doesn't matter. But you are aware that what? There's satanic activity going on. This changes things drastically. Because usually what happens? When someone does something bad to me, what do I do? I begin to think bad things about them. I project onto them the evilest of things that, wow, that person's just a jerk. Well, the perception of a follower of Jesus says what? That person is created in the image of God and has a fallen heart, but Satan is twisting that fallen heart at different times to do stuff. And so I realize there's something going on. So I'm not going to project onto that person all of the evil. Now, I'm not saying there's no blame to be had with that person or with myself, but it's an awareness that there's other activity going on. And so if we're going to engage in this battle, and let me tell you, if you don't engage in it, you've already lost. Satan's got you right where he wants you. He's just going to continue to eat away your joy. He's going to continue to eat away your relationships. He's going to continue to make you a person of apathy when it comes to the kingdom of God. If we're going to engage in this battle, we've got to become aware. Ask the question, what would the evil one have me do? We've got to have a plumb line of truth so that we can know the lies of Satan. And then finally, we've got to recognize that Satan is in work in the people around us and myself. So let's have a better understanding of the people that we're relating to. So, a little bit odd, a little bit weird, right? It's not exactly talked about a lot around the water cooler at church, at work, but there's a lot of supernatural activity going on. The reality is this. If you take the Bible seriously, if you take Jesus seriously, you have no choice but to take the reality of supernatural activity seriously as well. And so the question is, are you going to engage in the battle? Now, as we leave here this morning, we've got a great danger before us. That is to become obsessed with the spiritual activity. That is to start to celebrate that, yes, we are having influence over Satan. When in reality, we are to have awareness and engage in the battle, but the reality of Satan and the spiritual realm is not the source of our joy or our confidence. Jesus' followers, we've looked at this passage many times in Luke 10, are sent out. And as they're sent out, they're casting out demons. And they come back to Jesus and they're like, this is awesome. We're casting out demons. We're doing all this miraculous work. And Jesus corrects them right on the spot and says, do not rejoice that demons submit to you in my name, but rejoice that your names are written in the book of heaven. This morning, we leave here with joy and confidence because our names are written in the book of heaven through Jesus Christ. And when Satan attacks us, guess what? Our automatic response is this. Satan, you've already lost. I'm in. There's nothing you can do to me. Satan, you can harm me physically. Satan, you can harm me spiritually. Satan, you can harm me emotionally. But guess what? Satan cannot take away the source of my joy. Satan cannot take away my eternal security because my name is written in the book of heaven. And so this morning, leave here rejoicing through confidence in Jesus Christ, but aware 
and engaged in the battle that someone is trying to rob you of your joy, of your soul, and of your neighbor's soul. So let us go forth and be aware that God is at work, but we have an enemy that's at work against us. Let us pray. Everlasting God, we come before you this morning, and this is weird stuff to talk about, God, and I know that there's some of us in here that are struggling with this topic. And so, Lord, I pray that you give us um, continued discernment and wisdom, that you, God, would make us aware, that you'd give us desire to be in your word to understand further. But this morning, above all, we pray that you would give us confidence to stand firm in Jesus. And we pray that you give us confidence to engage in the battle. So this morning, Lord, I pray specifically now that if there's lies in any of our hearts or minds, that if Satan has planted a lie, God, I ask that you right now would make each of us aware of that lie that Satan has planted. And God, I ask now also that you would give each of us a desire to fight, to fight for our neighbor, to fight for your glory above all else. We thank you for your patience and your kindness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.